This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm HF Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist DeSoto. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so honored to have Raphael Rakowski with us. Raphael, would you do us a favor and tell us a little bit about your background, where do you work at, and a little bit about what your company does? Sure. Um, my name is Raphael Rakowski. I'm uh, the co-founder and chairman of Medically Home. My background is in engineering and healthcare services. Um, I have a, a very, very strong point of view regarding um, the way care needs to be delivered. I lost my dad to a medical error in a hospital where I was joining the board. And that's how this journey began. And Monday will be exactly 13 years since this began for me. Medically Home, the company that came out of this experience was set up to try to take the fixed costs that are currently expended in a hospital stay, which is about 65% of the cost of care, and use that, that spend to provide more care over a longer period of time in a site that patients prefer, which is their home. So the idea was how could we you know, reliably and safely move about a third of the patients that are currently hospitalized in a bricks and mortar facility to the home and reverse 150 years of experience where we've centralized care to make it more convenient for clinicians, to make it more convenient for patients, but it would take a revolution of logistics, uh, software, safety systems, all of the things that we've taken for granted by centralizing care would have to be now moved into the patient's community where they live. And we would have to take what used to be post-acute care, integrate it with acute care and no longer have a clean line between acute post-acute care, which are really artifacts of reimbursement. A patient is sick until they're not sick anymore. They're not acute sick and then post-acute sick. The, the reimbursement allows for post-acute care costs and facilities. So um, the, the basic idea of medically home is to provide for our customers, which are health systems, a mechanism to care for patients that otherwise would either be going to an ED or having an acute stay in the hospital and otherwise having care that follows like SNFs and provide a single episode of care with a single care team, no transitions in the comfort of their own home. That is the medical home mission. We do that with health systems. We're in six states where we're expanding rapidly, mostly because of COVID and our partnership with Mayo Clinic. So, so Raphael, uh, this is HF. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for being on the uh, podcast. So if I'm understanding correctly, Medically Home, you guys partner with hospitals and the purpose is to extend the capacity of that hospital. It's not a separate separate entity or separate it's it's not like they're being discharged from the hospital into into another entity. Just imagine that the ED uh, entryway has thirty thousand other entrances, and imagine that the med surge floor tower has another thirty thousand beds, except they're in the community, but they belong to the hospital and they're managed by the hospital. This is not someone disintermediating you. This is you providing another care site for your patients. Well, that, that, that's fascinating. And you said you guys are operating in six states. 
you you said thirty thousand beds. Is that an actual number that you guys have? No, now no, or? no. It's 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 we've we've been operating with this model now with these systems for about a year. So we're we're ramping up very very rapidly, and obviously a lot of that driven HF by by COVID. About half of our patients now have COVID. But the basic principle is the target is to get to about 20% of admissions for a hospital to care for them in this model. Now, either you're full and you'd like that 20% additional capacity, or you're starting to see declines in your ED volume, which many health systems are seeing, and you want to be able to ensure that those patients stay within the sphere of your control. But either way, whether it's capacity because of loss of volume in the ED or you're seriously getting into value with you know real intention. No matter what your intentions are, the the, the model facilitates that kind of additional capacity. It's great, and this is actually perfect timing. Uh, Baptists, we're really beginning our journey for the hospital at home program um, at our our main hospital here in Memphis. Um, we 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 applied for and and got the the CMS hospital at home. I guess waiver. permission uh, waiver, okay, uh, to start it, and we've um, been working through the logistics over over the last several months. But um, it is really interesting. It, it's an interesting program, and I've been excited about it ever since I, I read the New England Journal article. I think where Johns Hopkins had done it several years ago. Um, it's a very interesting concept. The, the CMS part of it is interesting to me because these patients that are admitted to the hospital at home have to look and feel to them exactly the same as an inpatient would in the hospital. So right. you, you can't take somebody that you're seeing in clinic and it was kind of sick in clinic and put them in a hospital at home and remote monitor them. These are somebody that you would otherwise have admitted to the hospital and not observation patients. These are real admissions um, to right. the hospital. Can you talk a little bit about how how that, how those CMS regulations, I guess, affect um, the hospital at home program. To me, it kind of seems like it, it seems like it, it puts a little bit of a barrier uh, to the program, and it makes it hard to find patients that would otherwise fit. Is that is that been your experience with it at all? No, quite the contrary. But but you did frame out, I think, the problem superbly. So the the, the decisions that CMS made were driven primarily by two things. One was a rapid ability to create additional capacity during COVID. That's what drove their decision. But secondarily, there was a large concern about the potential of bad actors entering the space in spaces like you know, home health and SNFs. So they were very thoughtful that they wanted to restrict the payment, um, which is the control valve, to hospitals and EDs only to control the bad actors. And, and the long-term view, it's not necessarily to restrict patients who are not qualified for hospitalization, but to expand the catchment. So in our program, we admit patients directly from, you know, from specialty practices that are exacerbating, from, from urgent care clinics. We admit patients that are homebound, that are on home health service, they're exacerbating, and we send an ED to the home and work them up and admit them from their home to their home. But from, from, from Medicare's standpoint, they wanted to ensure during this first phase that they had control over quality and working with systems they're familiar with, that they have a relationship of trust for high acuity. The, the theory behind hospital at home is it's a platform, it's a chassis. 
So we're doing clinical trials at home. We're doing oncology at home. We're doing pre and post surgical care at home. But all of these are things that the hospital does. We're not doing things to substitute for primary care. We're not doing things to substitute for specialty care. Having said that, we are now launching in Oklahoma a very comprehensive program for the whole state because of the rural health challenges they have, and particularly with critical access hospitals, that is going to substitute just about everything, partnering with local care providers. And in essence, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the ECHO model. Are you familiar with ECHO? It's a hub and spoke model developed in the University of New Mexico because they had broad cases of hepatitis C across the state, but infectious disease specialists were concentrated in a couple of cities. And the drugs which work for hep C are very expensive and dangerous. So to get those prescribed using primary care physicians was a big challenge. So they centralized the, the specialist, the infectious disease specialist and created spokes of primary mm -hmm. care training them. So that idea of decentralizing care, concentrating and centralizing expertise is, is the whole idea of a platform of hospital at home. Take the expertise, you know, the attending physicians, let's say they're ED docs, hospitalists, intensivists, centralize them, and in the community, provide new training, new models, new systems to integrate with these centralized care providers. And that's the idea. From CMS's standpoint, phase one is just to provide a reimbursement to substitute for the DRG. Phase two, because they already have 90-day bundles, as you know, is to provide all the care necessary for a longer episode, which typically is 30 to 90 days. But phase one was a response to a national emergency, which is capacity challenges in hospitals. Gotcha, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I'm glad to hear about phase two. I did not know much about it because that's where I think this is really gonna grow is that transition period from uh, being hospitalized to being at home where the patient's still really vulnerable, but um, until recently, we didn't really have a way to to manage them effectively other than just by nursing phone calls, case management phone calls periodically. Right. And, and that hasn't been shown to, to make much of a dent. And I watched one of your videos and, and you had, you talked about, you know, there's a 240 or 250 hospitals that are actually busting at the seams and actually want to expand capacity. And then you talked about the, the 3000 that, that, you know, they have a length of stay of four days and then they go to inpatient rehab for 15 days and whatnot. And you talked about just having that one continuum where they're at home the whole time. Is CMS going to allow you to change the status of the bed per se? Does that make sense? You know, this is an inpatient bed and, and then it's going to be a rehab bed or a swim bed. Or it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great question, HF. I think, I think the, the best answer is I look to the existing 90-day BPCIA bundles that they have today. So I'll give you a really stark example of how obvious this is going to be over the next few months as data starts to accumulate. 104 hospitals have applied for the waiver now uh, since it's been offered. No, I actually think it's 107. Um, so today in the 90-day CHF bundle in Florida, CMS will pay a hospital uh, $37,000 for 90 days of care. That was initially triggerable with a minimum two-day index admission in a hospital. Now they're in a hospital. You think, wow, a typical CHF DRG is $12,000. They're giving me $37,000. Well, they know that you're going to have a readmission at 90 days. They know you're going to use a SNF. 
and they know that you're really not going to change the way you deliver care. You're just going to shuffle the patient around and try to manage the payment and the, and the care provision with existing resources. Now imagine the patient has CHF in the, in the ED, they go home and they're home for 90 days. There's no index admission. There's no readmission because they're home the entire 90 days. And that $37,000 bundle, which most hospitals experience about $35,000 a cost, that bundle now is about $17,000, $18,000 over 90 days. So if you think about you know, managing margin for a hospital, you should go after those bundles. The patient should never touch your med search floor and they should never leave their home for 90 days. I mean, euphemistically, they never need to be in a, in a facility. And that's the opportunity and the promise for Medicare going forward is bundles designed around the continuity of care related to a single episode. But the architecture and the economics is already built. What's different is instead of the two-day index admission being in the hospital, the two-day index admission is in the home. And that changes everything. It's, the program is really exciting. And, and I just think of all sorts of different ways that it can help improve healthcare. I mean, it, it touches almost everything. I would imagine patient satisfaction is much higher with this program than being admitted to the hospital. I mean, I haven't had much experience uh, being a patient in the hospital, except for the birth of my two children. And it was my wife that was the patient, but that was one of the worst experiences of my life, just sleeping in the hospital or not <laughs> sleeping. I uh, imagine you get much better sleep when you're in your own house and you're not getting woken up for 3 a.m. Uh, lab draws and vitals. Um, infection rates, I would, I would guess, uh, are lower with patients being at home, just less risk of hospital acquired infection because you're not in the hospital, um, as well as uh, length of stay. I would think that the patients are, are able to get better faster, but I, I would love to hear your, your comments on all three yeah, of those so, areas. Yeah, well, it's actually eight. So so Bruce Leff, Dr. Bruce Leff at Hopkins, who's been the father of, of caring for patients at home that had acute episodes him along with a whole host of other academic researchers, both here and abroad, uh, have been looking at this idea, not so much on how to deliver it, but more of what the outcomes are. So 25 years, uh, randomized controlled trials, at least 25 of them around the world, here are the headlines, 16% uh, reduction in mortality, uh, fall rates dramatically lower, infection rates dramatically lower, satisfaction rates dramatically higher, Cost savings range from 20 to 30 percent. Um, the other thing that, that's that's really interesting is engagement levels. When you put a UPC band on a patient and you put a gown on them where their ass is showing, and you take away their dignity and you throw them into a hospital, versus now you're in their home in their nightgown with their dog and their TV and their bathroom and the height of the bed, which is what they're used to, you're changing every imaginable clinical and, and call it social determinant measure, the, the feeling that you're in their home as opposed to they're in your hospital uh, changes everything. So every measure regarding outcomes, the top eight have been studied significantly and comprehensively over the last 25 years. There is no single measure that isn't better in the home. The challenge is not whether or not it makes sense to be in the home from the point of view of those things, it's how do you do it for high acuity? So our model, to the best of our knowledge, there is no one in the world other than us doing high acuity care at home. Low acuity care, think of a cellulitis patient. 
who would typically be in the hospital three days, they need some, you know, antibiotics, they need scheduled nursing visits and maybe one or two scheduled doctor calls. That's not what we deal with. We deal with really sick, high acuity patients whose diagnosis may change, whose clinical status may change, their stability might change. We need to rapidly 24 seven get to bedside. By night, they might need a Foley at three o'clock in the morning. So these are a completely different class of patients, which means you need infrastructure that can rapidly get to bedside. And the, the number one thing I can tell you, just based on my background, if a physician wrote an order for oxygen or Foley, and let's say labs, or and an x-ray because they suspect the antibiotics not working for UTI, and that doesn't happen exactly when the doc thought it would, you're done. We're not taking a high-duty UTI patient home ever again. It just takes once. So the supply chain, the services, the infrastructure, to decentralize those services that are currently centralized. That's the big idea that we've been after for 13 years. The other stuff is easy. You can send home health and a doc all day long for acuity, low acuity patient. But if you're dealing with high acuity, you're talking about a completely different class of infrastructure. And, and Medicare, if they really want to dent, dent the market, there are only five to seven, maybe 8% of hospitalized patients that are low acuity. To get to the volume, you need to get to the acuity. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say for us. We're, we're starting with the, the low acuity, the things that make the most sense. And, you know, your heart failures that aren't requiring a ton of support, uh, maybe pneumonia, cellulitis. Those are others on our, our radar, uh, some COPD and things of that nature. Um, can you give us some examples of high acuity patients you're seeing and, and what sort of additional infrastructure is needed for those? Yeah, so, so just take a patient that's got COVID heart failure and is septic. Take a yeah, we wouldn't have, we, we, we couldn't admit that. There's no way. <laughs> take, 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 take a patient, take a patient that's, that's got cancer and heart failure and they're being treated with, you know, high intensity, uh, you know, therapeutic, which is causing, you know, neutropenia, all the things we know it causes plus cardiac issues. So the, the infrastructure necessary to handle that first and foremost, separate from monitoring, obviously clinical status, vitals, communication, all that. The, the number one thing is a 24 seven medical command center, staff, ED docs, hospitalists, intensivists, NPs, and RNs. And what we call service coordinators. So when a physician writes an order, we know for sure that order is gonna get executed. So that infrastructure is the base infrastructure necessary for high acuity. Now you need to, you know, have an x-ray, you know, cardio, sonogram, labs, all of those service providers in the community today are organized around the post-acute care model, which means you order them and typically they get on a schedule and typically they can come sometime tomorrow, as opposed to they're on demand and they're dispatchable immediately to the patient's home. So the infrastructure necessary is a 24 demand center with the clinician staffing it around the clock, combined with the services in the community that can be rapidly dispatched, trained, to do acute, not post-acute care. That's the infrastructure. There are other things like software. There's a whole bunch of AI that facilitates this. But if you're asking me, what's the big unlocking idea that separates the line in the sand between low acuity and high acuity? It's the 24-7 command center staffed by all the necessary clinicians for high acuity, combined with services in the community that can rapidly get to bedside, reliably. 
And does, does your company run that command center or is that the hospital running it? Our, customer, our customers run the command center with their clinicians. We're the ultimate behind the scenes white label provider. We enable the customer to do this and we set up the supply chain. One of our biggest partners on the supply chain is Cardinal Health. Uh, they know a little bit about logistics and they know a little bit about hospitals and about patients. So we, we set up the supply chain, we provide all the software, we create the interoperability between our software and the host system, which is typically Epic or Cerner. We enable all of that, we do all of the training, and then we connect all of our different customers together for best practices around patient care. That's what we do. Are there, that, that's, really, that's really amazing and fascinating. Uh, when you're talking about just the actual physical location where somebody lives, are, are, are there some constraints that you might say, okay, you, you know, where you live, your house doesn't really qualify to be uh, a hospital bed at home, or you know you got to think about internet service and you have to think about all those things. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and some of the obstacles that that you face uh, from that. We're, we're yeah we're in the most rural part of northwestern Wisconsin with Mayo Clinic. We're we're in eastern parts of the most rural parts of California, and and now we're about once the entire state of Oklahoma. And, and the issues are patients' home may not be safe enough, in which case you may, you may need a respite site. On that front, um, I'm thinking very, very carefully of meeting with churches. There's 4,700 churches in Oklahoma, as an example, as a respite site. Uh, that's one, one issue is the patient's home is not safe enough. The second is internet connectivity. We found a lot of really good work on solutions, including putting satellite dishes on our paramedic trucks. We've had a lot. A lot of experience with that issue. It continues to evolve. But the big two issues are patient's home is not safe enough, IV drug use, violence, uh, no electricity, no hot water, or um, there is a, a, a really, really meaningful issue in and around connectivity. Although I, I think less than 1% of the time we've had to not admit a patient because of connectivity. That's very interesting. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, the for those high acuity patients, the physician needs to be able to get what they would normally be able to get in the hospital uh, immediately or, or within their you know, desired time frame. Usually, if we order something stat, we kind of expect it within the next hour. Is the same true for y'all for MRIs and CT scans, or how do you work with some of that that higher grade imaging? So, yeah. So somebody once asked me, like, how on earth do you get an MRI and a CAT scan into somebody's house? And the answer is we, we don't. We use a technology called a car, and we get <laughs> the patient in the car. We take them to the MRI and CAT scan, but they never leave our care. Uh, now, I did look at a tech, a really good tech in Northern California, that's a portable, uh, a portable MRI machine. It is pretty impressive. Um, it's probably the size of a large Xerox machine. It is, it is portable. It's large, but it's portable. And within a year, we'll be able to do breast scans with that. Uh, you know, in the field. So that, that technology is evolving. But for today, you know, advanced imagery is done at whatever yeah. customer site is, and we bring the patient there back and forth, and we care for them during that time. But but for, you know, routine chest X-rays and things like that, I, I assume you, you have yes. a, a unit that you've taken. Wow. X-rays, EKG, sonograms, et cetera. Yeah, and the portable ultrasounds machine, I mean, that, that's a growing field in and of itself. Yep. So, you know, I imagine that fits perfectly into this. Yep. And sorry, I have lots of questions, but uh, <laughs> um, so suppose you did have a patient at home that was decompensating. 
what what is y'all's process for escalating guess, escalating that care yeah. and getting into a hospital if they need it? Yeah. So the the first thing I'll tell you is that the the let's call it the amplitude of the escalation when you're monitoring the patient and you're communicating with them all day long. The, the number of times that you're going to have a surprise where you have a rapid escalation, like in the early days of COVID, if you remember, patients were decompensating rapidly. Uh, and fortunately, that learning around that has been taken, and now we can handle those patients differently than we did initially. But we escalate no different than anyone else. If we see that this patient's on track and they need to be brought stat either into the ICU or the ED, we transport them immediately. But it's not like you find out oh my God, this patient's just decompensating. There is a trend, as you know, of, of watching these patients, combination of vitals, responsiveness, et cetera. So we're typically not surprised that the patient needs to be escalated. And if they do, we do, we, we, we transport. Do you ever preemptively move them based on trends? Well, if a trend says this patient's gonna crash, yeah, it's whether you call it okay. preemptive or not, if we, if we believe there's clinical risk with the patient, when I say we, Remember, our customers are sure. the who's who of clinical care. So when they believe the patient's at risk, of course they'll escalate. Yeah. Do you have, for, for different hospitals, do you have one model that you try to implement or do you allow hospitals to, to sort of create a custom model, if that makes sense, you know, okay. Yeah, the answer, the answer is, you know, in this stage of the company's development and the market's development, I'm very big supporter of the, if a, if a hospital has a point of view, particularly if it's for clinical and safety reasons that, that we believe is in the best interest of patients, of course, we're going to be flexible and accommodate that. That makes a ton of sense. But as we've worked with the kind of cl clinical partners we have, I, I have not been surprised. I have yet to be surprised when someone says, well, this is something you never thought of, because if you think of who our customers are, they've been around for a while and they've been taking care of patients, particularly Mayo, who's known for serious and complex care. Um, so, but to answer your question pointedly, if, if you had a very specific series of things that you wanted to customize, of course, we would accommodate that unless they put patients at risk. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that as, as bad as, as COVID and the pandemic have, has been, it has really shown us that we can, we can deliver healthcare in a different way, you know, right. through telemedicine. And, and it seems like. You know, I'll be honest with you, if you were to ask me if you could have done this a year ago, I'd say, man, you know, probably not in my lifetime. I mean, I would almost think you're crazy. How can how can you provide acute hospital care in somebody's home? But, you know, we, COVID has caused us to, to just rethink everything and, 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 and become more innovative. Yeah, so it's 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 a terrible blessing in disguise because our our efforts over all these years have never have been close to what what's happened because of COVID. Um, but to your point, yes, we we we're we're we send the man to the moon. We're sending them, we're sending people to Mars. We can do anything in the United States. I just I just wish we stopped losing the confidence we used to have when I grew up. Um, but th this is not rocket science. The the real question around this is the political and financial forces to protect the bricks and mortar investment that we've made in hospitals. It is not a clinical challenge. We've proven it's not a logistics or technology challenge. It is a political and a financial challenge. And as you get into rural America, where I'm spending all my time now, 
and you look at the challenges of critical access hospitals and you know average daily census of three to six people with 25 beds spending 15 to 20 million dollars a year seeing almost no patients and all that money is being siphoned out of the community to provide care that otherwise would be provided with models like this that's the real kind of the coming of age is COVID taught us that telemedicine works, but COVID never taught us on how to do logistics. A consult between a clinician and a patient's easy. Getting oxygen there on time, doing the Foley, getting the x-rays read, getting the medication changed, that's not telemedicine. It's, it's Amazon, and that's what we've built. It's an Amazon meets Uber model. It is not telemedicine. The telemedicine part's easy. Technology's mature and it's easy. It's the dispatch and control and safety of patient care in, in the point of care where they live, which is their home. That's really great. Um, I'm very excited and I imagine this trend is only gonna continue. I, I think right now is CMS limiting it to patients have to be within 25 miles of the hospital or the, the healthcare provider. Is that still true? I, 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 think, I think so. Don't quote me, Jake. I think so. Um, the, the CMS, idea right now to the best of my knowledge is to get initial hospitals to participate collect yes. outcomes data and then obviously look at what the next step is but i'm pretty confident that whoever has applied for the waiver regardless of what happens for whoever didn't apply cms is not going to shut this down by the end of the year given the amount of investment and effort that everyone's making to think of the model they're going to collect as much data around this as they can and those who are driving and leading it are going to most likely be the ones that they take benefits from this in, in terms of whether it's in market share or in other areas, but we're seeing a real division in the market of those who want to lead with better clinical models, more value than those that don't. What, what about your, what about your private insurance companies, your blue crosses, your Cygnas and your Aetnas? How, how are they on board they're with the this? Easy, they're the easiest. They're the easiest because you know, they they have a higher reimbursement rate and, and they obviously have a lot of post-acute care costs. So if you show up with a bundle to a typical commercial insurer or MA, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer value proposition. You're getting better care, getting, you know, getting a single bill and you're getting accountability and guaranteed costs, which are a significant savings from what you're paying today. So commercial insurance is easy. And, and now that, that Medicare has provided the waiver, it sends a signal to commercial insurers, most importantly, MA, that this program is safe and it works. Yeah, I know two other of our hospitals have already applied and after one has already gotten and I imagine that several others, we have 22 hospitals or will be eager to do the same. Where do you see your company going in the future? Or what are y'all's uh, next stages for the future? So Jake, two, two things, one is, uh, almost half of the new customers we're getting are people that tried doing this on themselves for low acuity and it worked. And the moment they tried one high acuity patient, game over uh, for the reasons I told you. So a lot of the inbound interest in Medically Home has been because, you know, the broken record that I've been talking about, the difference in low high acuity, when they start to experience it themselves, they recognize they didn't build the infrastructure and the infrastructure took years and a lot of money to build. So for us, we are going to continue to work with health systems that want to do this. And there's a lot of inbound interest. But for me personally, I stepped down from the CEO role. I was CEO and founder for 12 years. And I'm only interested right now in state level solutions and country level solutions. So 
having conversations with states and now with a couple of countries around this idea of focusing on rural care because it's the hardest thing to do. And if we demonstrate efficacy, safety, and impact with rural patients, the obviously suburban and, and urban patient populations much easier. So I see us continuing to grow with our existing customers, you know, probably be in 20 states by next year and, and hopefully have at least three seats, three states under our belt and one country by the end of next year doing this model for rural patients, underserved patients. Skip, I know you have a question. I just, I'm just amazed. I mean, this is so uh, interesting and I know we're kind of coming to the, uh, to the end of our time. So I'm going to ask 1 of the simplest questions of, of everyone. Um, how, you talk about logistics when you talk about your labor force and managing the labor force. And, and some of the, uh, some of the rural houses, some of the places you have to go. Talk a little bit about that as we kind of come to an end, because that that would seem like a challenge also. Yeah, it, it, it would. So um, just imagine that you need 18 services to go to the patient's bedside that you currently take for granted in the hospital. Meals, labs, imaging, uh, procedures like like catheters, blood, you know, phlebotomy, uh, medication, I, an IV nurse, all of the above, 18 services. In a, in a suburban or urban setting, those are contractable, trainable, integratable, uh, and we do that all day long. When you're in a rural community, you don't have any of those services. So what do you have? You have National Guards people, and you have people that can be trained quickly to become what we're calling super paramedics. So they are dispatched, they're firemen, they're, they're people that can be rapidly dispatched in a vehicle that we've designed that has all the equipment and, and training that we'll be providing and accrediting at a level that's never been done before, which is what we're doing now. So you're gonna have super paramedics to take on the functions Skip, of those 18 all in one package. And that's what we're doing. And it's the most intriguing idea. And I got this idea originally in India. I was working there eight years ago with the Ministry of Health. And they, they have, I mean, you talk about rural, <laughs> that's rural. So they had a series of communities there where you know young women were never educated and girls weren't educated. So they built these one-room schoolhouses, and the teacher of the schoolhouse was a midwife, and they gave her a smartphone, and and they would teach their class every day to these girls, and they would obviously deliver babies. But when somebody was sick, they'd show up whether it's an ear infection or not. They'd use the smartphone. It was tethered. They have the best cell system in the world in India including the rural areas, and they would send a signal to the command center in, in Mumbai, and then the doctor at the command center would tell her what to do. There was a stash of antibiotics and stuff in the schoolhouse. And I saw that eight years ago, I go, brilliant, brilliant. We've taken a, a multi-purpose human being, turned them into a teacher, a midwife, and basically an ED doc and a primary care physician uh, using, <laughs> using this. Um, so, I was so moved by that. It just made me think if, if they could do that, why can't, why can't we mobilize, first of all, create and mobilize services in the community and, and make it a badge of honor for people to take care of each other in the community. So that's when the idea of the super paramedic was born. 
Well, I could I could talk to you for a long, long time. And first, let me say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know that you're going to be speaking to our Sophie uh, group here. I believe I want to hear soon. And uh, I'm just so thankful for this really innovative work because if there's ever a scenario where it feels like how we play the game is about to radically change, what I've heard for this last half hour feels that way that how that game is being played is getting ready to, to be put on its head. And so thank you so much, Raphael, for your time. Thank you so much for the work you're doing to improve patient care. And just really want to tell you how much I appreciate you. Thank you, Skip. Thank you, everybody, for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Raphael. Thank you. And, and I know if I'm not getting admitted to the hospital until I can get admitted to the hospital at home. That's that's my deal. Core <laughs> All right. Take care. Take care. Uh -huh.